You are listening to the Sustainable Transitions podcast, a podcast series where we explore our transition to a low-carbon society, the communities that lead the way and the people who support them. I am your host, Stephanie Becker. Today's guest is Dr. Prajal Pradhan, a researcher at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, whose research focuses on food, diets, and climate change. He works on the SUSA project, which examines sustainable Amazonian landscapes in Peru and Colombia. Welcome, Prashal. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you very much. I would like to add that I'm also working for SUS Food Project, which is about sustainable food system in South Asia under climate change. Oh, exciting! Well, first, drew you to studying food systems and climate change? I think the food system is interesting because we all need food. So I was in a conference in Pakistan last week and there was an interesting lecture and there it was mentioned that okay we need ear we can't survive without ear for for, for our three minutes for, for without water for three days and without food for 30 days so food is one of the crucial thing that is needed for our survival not only our but for survival of everyone and when you look at climate change climate change is affecting and will affect our food production and food productivity so that's one aspect but on the other hand, our food system is also impacting our climate due to greenhouse gas emissions. But not only our climate, but also our environment in large, because there are issues related to uh, eutrophication due to over-applier application of anthropogenic fertilizers. There are issues related to deforestation for making agriculture fields and pastures and so and so. So it's, it's interesting. It's interesting what we need. The basic thing for our survival and at the meantime it is impacting our climate our environment in a negative way and whatever happens to our climate and environment will also feed back mainly on a negative way to our food system so that makes things complex as well as interesting this is mainly the reason i'm interested to look at this area and is that what first drew you to the topic or is there any story behind how you got into it if you want to go a bit back then i'm from nepal and in nepal when you look at the official statistics you can see that i think more than 75 percent or more than 85 percent of, of the household are engaged in farming activities these farms are not so big size and then there are also farms or farmers who produce food and produce food by the farmer is not enough for their whole consumption. So also in my family, we used to have a small farm, also also a small kitchen garden and so on. So so there is always this personal touch to, to agriculture. Like I, I used to have some hens and, and, and small chickens in my home. So that's how I grew up. I would not call it like a big farm, but it's, it's more like a farm embedded within the town. Very typical way of living in developing countries, not in a mega cities, but a bit on town. And this is one of the things, like the first attachment with the food. So that's why it's quite interesting to understand and to know how the food are produced. And then with the changing climate condition, it's also interesting to see how these things are interlinked. And so what were the main goals of your research? So when you talk about food, so I think we need to trust back not a few decades, but I think a few hundred years, starting with Malthus' hypothesis, where he posed this hypothesis saying that increase in human population outpace increase in productivity growth. What does that mean is the population is increasing faster than the increase in our food production, 
and in this one day we will create a situation where there might be a population collapse because we will not be able to produce enough food to nourish the growing population. It was some centuries ago and, and the population is growing. In a way, technological progress and also green revolution managed to sustain the growing population. Now the question is whether this holds true in the future when we are talking about around 10 billion people by 2050 and also on the climate change. So I think this question is still valid. How can we nourish the growing population? And in this era, this question needs to be modified in a way that how can we sustainably nourish the growing population with putting minimum possible environmental impact or disturbing our environment in a very minimistic way. And this is my main research goal, to address the challenge of nourishing the growing population in a sustainable way. Interesting. So, uh, sorry, just to add on to that question a little bit. So Malthus, a lot of people think that he was wrong. Do you think that's changing now with climate change? Or, or you're not sure because climate change is adding so many different factors to food systems? I would not go into debate whether he is right or wrong. The, the thing is, yes, with technological progress, we were able to produce more food, even more food than we needed now. But the question is, there are two sides. One is how we are producing foods. One is the source. So land would be a source for food products. But there is also externalities involved in our food products. Whatever we do, we are disturbing our environment. One aspect here is greenhouse gas emissions. So our atmosphere can be considered as a shrink. So it's not only the source is limited, that means land for food production, but if you want to be within Paris Agreement to limit our global warming well below 2 degree or to achieve 1.5 degree target, we have to consider atmosphere as also strength. And we have to produce more food for growing population under this constraint, under the constraint of source, that is productively ag productive agricultural lands, constraint in terms of strength. One example of that would be atmospheric greenhouse gas emission. So the question is how we can produce more food on, on this constraint. And the second point is population are not only growing, but people are getting richer. That means when people are getting richer, their food preferences differ from the food preferences when they are poorer. So in other words, what we can see here is changing dietary habits. That means people are consuming more calorie-dense food, people are consuming more animal product, more meat, more milk, and it will create additional burden for our environment. For example, now with the industrial farming, we are using crop that could be directly eatable by humans to feed our livestock. And if we are eating more meat, that means we need more land to produce crop, not to feed ourselves, but first to feed our livestock and then consume this livestock later on. So that's why looking at all these issues, I think the question posed by Malthus is still relevant and we haven't solved that yet. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. And so how do you typically conduct your analysis? I consider myself as a food system analyst. What I mean as food system analyst is I'm not a modeler in a way, but I'm analyzing mostly the freely available data on different components of food system like food demand or food supply, food production, food productivity, greenhouse gas emission associated with this food production and so and so. And then I'm analyzing this in very simplistic way to answer the question of how we can nourish the growing population, mainly using 
freely available dataset, which include dataset provided by different statistical offices like FAO Start would be one of, one of the examples. And also, I'm also using freely available results from different agricultural models. And I look at both food demand side or food consumption side and food production and supply side and try to do a systematic analysis on these demand and supply data to understand what we can see in terms of food security or tumors the growing population. Okay, so, so then how do our diets affect climate change? So this is an interesting question. So as I mentioned before, whatever we do, like in terms of agriculture, is impacting our climate. And there are a few important things that we need to understand here. The first thing is, naturally, there is emission of methane coming from our soil or our emission of carbon dioxide from soil. And when you go for agriculture, when you apply fertilizer, uh, like nitrogen fertilizer and so on, there is greenhouse gas emission coming out of soil, mainly in terms of methane and nitrous oxide. That's one thing. And the emission of nitro oxide increases with increasing application of anthropogenic fertilizer, mainly nitrogen from the nitrogen source, like ammonia, urea and so on. Second is, in some of our agriculture practices, what we do is we flood our land, like in the flooding irrigation. And this holds mainly for rice cultivation. And when we flood our land, what happens on the soil is a digestion of the organic matter without oxygen. That means anaerobic digestion, and this relates to methane emission. So that's another part, meaning methane emission from rice cultivation. And in terms of livestock, uh, we can we can separate them as ruminants and non-ruminants. And in terms of ruminants, there is also digestion going on in their stomach mainly of, of grass and what they eat or forage there are oxygen and this also creates a lot of methane and then there is also emission of methane and nitrous oxide from the manure so in the whole chains of food production there is greenhouse gas emission involved and then so depending upon what we eat we will be responsible for this emission if, for example if you eat a lot of rice we are responsible for greenhouse gas emission producing from those paddies when you are eating a lot of meat, mainly ruminants meat, then we are responsible for emission coming from those ruminants. So this is how diet is affecting climate change because what we eat, we need to produce this food and different producing processes is involved and has an impact on the environment in terms of ground gas emission. Sorry, and just quickly, uh, what is a ruminant and non-ruminant animal? Could you give some examples maybe? Like ruminants are like goat, cattle, buffaloes and so on who have this two stomach. Okay. So, and, and where they go like a two different states of digestion. And then non-ruminants are like pig, chickens, where this doesn't happen. And so which one's worse for the climate, the, the cows and the goats? Yes. Okay. And so how will our changing diets affect the climate of the future? We have to understand first how diets are changing. What we can see from empirical data or, or even our lifestyle is that when the people get richer and richer up to a certain point, what happens is like they go for more affluence diet. And here the affluence diet means the diet which contains a lot of sugar, that means a lot of chocolates or sweets, a lot of oil crops, that means a lot of fried food and so, and then also a lot of meat consumption or animal product consumption so a lot of cheese a lot of processed meat a lot of bread meat and so on and interestingly we also found that there is also increasing consumption of vegetables and when we look at the future what we can see is due to development and economic process many countries so so far low-income countries are becoming 
richer. So they will become middle income country and high income country in the future. That means there is a driver for changing dietary habits in these countries. And in future, they may or they will consume more animal product than they are consuming now. And mainly from this large consumption of animal product, if the technology remains as it is, what will happen is like it will contribute to more greenhouse gas emission and this leads to climate change. So there has been some movements lately, definitely been gaining some momentum, for example, vegetarianism and veganism seems to be ever more popular. Did you see anything like that in your results or data? Is it not enough to counteract the developing countries? Okay, when we talk about diet and food system as a whole, the first thing is like, in principle, our food system should be healthy and nourishing, but that's not the case. The first thing is, Globally, we have around 800 million people who are suffering from undernourishment. But at the meantime, we are having around 2 billion people suffering from overweight and obesity. So our diets are not healthy at the moment because there are this fear of causing undernourishment in some places or even in the same countries. There are issues of undernourishment at one side and obesity at, at other side. So there is a imbalance between the food. And it's not sustainable because, as I mentioned before, it's mainly coming from this greenhouse gas emission and other environmental impact. Regarding whether we can see some changes in diet in a positive manner in terms of this vegetarian or vegan, what we can see in the data is like, yes, there are some, some changes like increased fruits and vegetable consumption. And regarding becoming vegan, I don't think that whole world need to be vegan or vegetarian. That will solve the problem because we have to also understand that around 40% of the world land is used for agricultural purpose. And here we are using around 10-12% of land for producing crops, which are mainly coming from this vegan diet. And around double this amount is used for producing livestock. And the best thing to do in this land, mainly meadows and pasture, is to produce livestock. And what livestock are doing is they are converting those plants or grasses which human cannot directly consume they are converting that into protein. And consumption of animal product is also quite essential mainly for kids while in their developing states to be healthy. And those kids who are not having enough animal product consumption, it's also shows that they have problems with stunting. So their height is shorter than it should be in, at their development. So going all the whole vegan or, or vegetarian might not be an option because we need both animal product. But the way we are consuming a lot in many of developed countries is not an option and in many of the developing countries at the moment consumption of animal product is very low which can be can be increased in future but the consumption of animal product which is very high in many of developed countries need to reduce and in that sense we can definitely see some movement in these countries like we can see more many people become vegetarian vegan is increasing but i think it's not enough it need to be improved further and one approach here would be to promote for a healthy diet because when we talk about healthy diet two important components of this healthy diet as recommended by who one is consume at least 400 grams of fruits and vegetables per person per day and when we look at the data the consumption of fruits and vegetables in many of the countries are not as recommended by WHO. So that's need to be improved. On the other hand, there is also recommendation on red meat consumption, mainly from World Cancer Research Fund, which recommend to consume less than 300 grams of red meat 
per person per week. But there are many countries, mainly developed countries, where the consumption of red meat is higher than recommended. So there is also recommendation for processed meat and processed meat consumption in these developed countries are also higher. And definitely we need to change this. We need to reduce consumption of red meat, we need to reduce consumption of processed meat in developed country, mainly because of healthy region which also have co-benefits in terms of environment. So what is food waste and how do you measure food waste? So when you talk about food waste, I think we can also combine food loss and waste. There are this term which is used together. Because what happens with food is like in terms of agriculture process, after we harvest food from our field and it reaches to consumer or even after reaching to consumer, all the food that has been harvested is not utilized or is not consumed and this part this is the difference between consumed food and the harvest amount of food is it's considered food loss and waste food loss is mainly the amount of food that is reduced when it comes from harvesting till the retailers or consumers and this is mainly due to different processes in food supply chain like during storage and transportation and so on. After reaching the consumer, we are also discarding some food at our household or we are throwing those food due to various reasons. Sometimes maybe cooking more than what we need or sometimes putting food for many days and it gets rotten. So we waste that food. This difference is the food waste that has been discarded at the consumer level. So how would you measure that food waste? Is it, do you ask people how much they throw out? Is there somebody go around and ask people that? Or is it more, you go to, I don't know, industrial production plants and somebody says, ah, we waste this much when we're producing these cookies? There are different approaches okay. uh, to measure food waste. And one of the approaches is, as you mentioned, to do a survey and to make a survey of this food waste. There are also studies who look at dustbins, or in terms of restaurant, they look at the plates and then try to estimate how much food is wasted based on that. But what we did is a bit different. In one of our studies, uh, we measured food waste as a consumer level, as a difference between how much food a population needs or how much food a country needs to feed this population and how much food is available for its population to consume. When we talk about how much food a person needs, the amount of food a person needs depends upon a person's body structure, like height, body weight, how active he or she is physically, gender, and also when we talk about females, it also depends upon whether she is pregnant or she is lactating or not, and so on. What we need is we estimate food requirement for a country. And then we compare how much food is available in that country for consumption for humans, which is mainly coming from FAO statistics. And this food availability is derived by looking at how much food is produced in that country, how much food is gone to the storage, how much food is exported and imported. So based on these values, FAO estimate the food supply or food availability in each and individual countries. And we estimated the food requirement looking at their demographic structure. And we use this approach as a difference between available food and needed food as a food waste. Here, I need to say that this might not be real food waste. This can also lead to some overconsumption. Sometimes people are consuming more than required. And this is one of the cause for obesity and overnourishment. But there are also recent studies that are arguing that, okay, when there are overconsumption, we can also put overconsumption as a food waste.
those. And so where do people waste the most food? Which country the bad guy? In terms of proportion, in relative term, what it said is when you talk about food loss, food that is reduced in harvesting till it reaches consumer, it says that in developing countries, this ratio is quite high. And this is mainly because of poor infrastructure. So due to poor infrastructure, food loss is higher in developing countries. However, when we talk about food waste, that means food discarded at the consumer level, we can see higher amount of food waste in developed countries. So what we can see is, for example, in Germany, per person, you know, on an average, we need around 2800 kilocalorie of food per day. But when we look at amount of food available in our market, it's more than 3500 kilocalories. This difference need to go somewhere. This difference either need to go to dustbin or people need to consume that and as a result there is a problem of obesity and so we can see most of this relation of increasing food waste also with increasing GDP or increasing human development index so more developed a country is more food they are wasting so this is becoming numb at the moment there are some exceptions for that for example in Japan which is also our country with high human development index however their food waste is relatively low than the country with a similar SDI why do you think that is? You get wealthier, you could just afford to throw out more food? Or are you buying different foods that, are, that go bad faster? There might be different aspect here. So one thing is, I think, is a, is a national policy. The national policy is to have more than enough food. That's one of the reasons to ensure the food security of the country. The national policy is to have more than enough. So when the more than enough food is available in the market, it will be true either at household when it's cheap or within supermarket. So we can also see a lot of food that has been thrown in, in the supermarket. So when we look at the type of food that is wasted, so you can see like it's mainly fruits and vegetables is wasted. This is a product which you can't store for longer time. So definitely buying those product more than needed is also causing that. But overall, I would say that the policy to have more than enough food is mostly responsible for this. Okay, interesting. What is the yield gap and why does it matter in the context of climate change? So we are living in a strange world because on one hand, one third of our produced food is waste. And on the other hand, we have agricultural land where the food are produced up to their potential. And the, when it talks about yield gap, it is a difference between the amount of crop or food that, that a farm is producing and the amount of food the farm can produce potentially based on its climatic condition considering optimum management and input. And when you look at a global scale, what we can find is like we are producing only 60 to 70 percent of our potential food production. That means if we do proper management, supply proper input, in this region, we can produce more food. And this mattered a lot, maybe not now, because we are producing more than enough food on a global scale, but there are also countries who can produce food, but importing food from other countries, there it might matter more. But in future, when you talk about nine to 10 billion people, this will matter a lot, because to feed this population, we have two options. One is agriculture expansion. The second one is agriculture intensification. When you talk about agriculture expansion, we can deforest our land or we can cut down the forest and convert that to agricultural land and then produce food there. But while doing so, there is also negative impact on the environment because deforestation is also one of the major sources of greenhouse gas emissions. And let's not talk about its impact on biodiversity and ecosystem services. But 
when you go for agriculture intensification, at least it avoids deforestation. It does have its own limitation and its problem, but if you do that in sustainable way, we can reduce that. At least I believe that. So when you talk about future in, in the context of climate change, also to limit global warming, we need to think about closing crop yield gap to feed the growing population because that's one of the places where we can invest more and produce more food within the limited land. And so how would you improve the yield gap? We can reduce yield gaps by different measures or let's say like there is no single bullet for that because it depends on the different locality. In general, water and nutrient management is one of the crucial factors. What does that mean is in the places where enough nutrients like phosphorus, potassium and nitrogen are implemented, if you start applying enough fertilizer with a hybrid uh, variety of crop, then we can produce more crop. And at the meantime, we also need to go for water management because there are regions where one of the limiting factors is the water supply. So if you go for irrigation, but with the efficient management, then we can produce more food or we can close this yield gap. But that might not be enough because in some cases it's about market access. The farm may not be accessible to the market either to buy those fertilizer or to sell their product. In some cases, the weather might not be predictable. So there might be a huge variability in the weather condition year to year. And if there is no insurance for farmers, farmers may reluctant to do those investments that is needed to close this area. So one of the factor would be to have this insurance for the farmer so that they can invest on their improvement and close the yield gap when the weather is good and get some money from insurance when the weather is bad. Other thing would be also it's not only fertilizer and water but there are also problems regarding pests, weed, diseases and also constraint on soil and this needs to be tackled but all these things are location specific and we need to apply the bundle of these management packages depending upon the specific location to, to close this yield gap. Climate change, from my understanding at least, we can expect even less predictable weather, even more diseases and crops. Do you think that will make it even harder to reach the yield gap in the future? Let's put it in this way. In the context of climate change, potential yield will be affected. So the potential will be different and the yield gap will be also different. So we need to put all those management and input factors produce more regardless of climate change. For example, what we know from literature is the climate change, depending upon the different scenario, it will have an impact of 20% on the, on the potential crop. But we are having like a 20% of ill gap at the moment. And then if we don't work on closing this ill gap, climate change will, will reduce our ill further. It's, it needs to go hand to hand. And so which countries have the largest yield gap? Yeah, when you talk about largest yield gap, we can see that mainly in Africa at the moment. We do have the problem of yield gap also in Asia and also in Latin America. But the largest yield gap there is in Africa and interestingly also in parts of Eastern Europe or over Soviet Union. And for this, some argues that this is mainly coming from the economic region. Why do you think that understanding the relationship between food systems and climate change is important? Our food system is having negative impact on our environment, like contributing to climate change. And these negative impacts of environment is also having a feedback loop or feedback to our agriculture reducing its productivity. So that's the reason we need to understand this loop so that we can produce our food sustainably and then while doing that, we can also ensure that our climate, our environment will be 
as it is now or even more improved so that it will provide other opportunity for food production. And what can the public do to address some of these problems? People can do a lot and at the end it boils down to individual decisions. One example would be dietary choices. When you choose our diet, I would not say we need to go vegan or vegetarian, but let's put health and climate as our focus and then consume food accordingly. For example, we can eat a bit less meat, less animal products that will already contribute a lot. Also for our own health and also for the environment. We need to consume food what is needed, so we need to reduce overconsumption because if you consume more than what is required, then it's also leading to obesity, overweight and related health diseases. So individuals need to consume enough food, but not too much animal product. And enough fruits and vegetables would be good. We want one more point here. And in terms of food waste, we can also do a lot. We need to avoid food waste as possible. Buy what is needed, order what is needed. Take a small plate if there is a buffet. We always tell you to have a lot of food in the buffet that will reduce the amount of food you can put in the plate and at the last while eating if you feel like eating more you can go and have more but this could these are the simple things one can do and maybe one can also think about eating regional and local product so that they can know each other so what i see now is like there is a link between producer and consumer is disrupt because we don't know from where our food is coming and we don't know who is consuming our food. That's why we are not respecting the food we are eating and producers are also not practicing responsible production way because they are not aware of whom they are eating. So if we can reconnect the producer and consumer by local and regional food, what happens is like producer will have more respect for their food and farmers will also produce food in a more sustainable manner because they know who they are eating this food and if they are producing in a sustainable manner then it will affect their health and also environment. So this would be another thing. Try to promote local and regional product and one of the major reasons for that is to reconnect producer and consumer. And I don't know if you know the answer but is it better to eat local meat or vegetables from far away that are imported for example? What would be better for the environment? It depends because for example if there is a pasture and then the best thing to do in, in the past is to grow cattle and if they are grown, eating meat, yeah? Okay. But how often? At what amount? So that's the main thing, yeah? Okay. And then also when you talk about vegetables, how these vegetables are produced, mainly the green leaves, so that they are produced in greenhouse using a lot of inputs, then it may have more emissions. So depending upon how things are produced, because I would say greenhouse gas emission is one dimension. But there are also other dimensions like energy used, what could be the alternative use of land and so on. So most important thing is consume what is needed and then in terms of food consume as much as diversified product as it is. And I would say like consuming local or regional and seasonal food. I think that will help a lot. And so uh, what types of policies would you recommend to deal with these issues? I think one thing would be government in terms of food policy move away from having more than enough food in our market. I think that's one of the drivers for, for food waste and so on. Second thing is our food system is now distorted because it's not sustainable, neither healthy. And this needs to be fixed. Fixed in the sense that we are consuming more meat than needed. We are consuming more sugar than we needed. 
This is mainly the case in Western countries. And we need to fix that. In terms of sugar, they might need a sugar tax or whatever. And we are not consuming enough fruits and vegetables. So there should be a policy to make public awareness about sustainable and healthy diet. So telling people like what is healthy to eat, how much to eat and so on. So there should be some movement on that. And then putting the label in, in a supermarket, what is healthy, what is not. I think it will help a lot. And we can already see some examples from tobacco where policy intervention help to reduce overconsumption or consumption of tobacco a lot. And maybe we need some such measure also in terms of our food system to steer that more on a sustainable and healthy way. And in terms of producer, we need to have policy and regulation so that food are produced in a sustainable way. Well, thank you very much, Pajal, for the interesting discussion. And thank you for listening. If you would like more information on the content of this podcast or sustainability transitions in general, visit the Sustainability Transitions blog at sustainabletransitionsblog.com. And I have very exciting news. The Sustainable Transitions podcast is now available on CastBox for easy listening on your smartphone.